Well, welcome back, everybody, to a series that we are halfway through in 1 and 2 Samuel, but we sort of left off about a little over a year ago. So if you joined us recently, you might not know that. But it's been a little bit like one of those Netflix series where you can sort of binge the whole thing in one go, and then you have to wait a year for the next series to come out. But don't worry, the waiting is over, and we're going to pick it up and carry on in 2 Samuel, which I know is what you've all been uh, really waiting for pretty much every day since that point when we left off. And the overarching question that our passage raises this morning is, how seriously do we take God? How seriously do we take God? Just have that in your mind as we go through this morning. But before we get to that, we need to locate ourselves in the story a little bit. So let me just do a little bit of uh, recap, the sort of previously on 1 Samuel kind of thing. So the narrative of 1 Samuel has has kind of been about a head-to-head between two kings. On the, in, in the one corner, we've got King Saul, uh, the current king, and in the other corner, we've had King David, the prospective king. Saul and David going head to head. And there's a sense in which we know how this story is going to go as we start um, 2 Samuel, because in the middle of 1 Samuel, God had revealed that he had raised David up to replace Saul, and he was going to give David the kingdom. God didn't get the memo that in the 21st century uh, we need a spoiler alert when you're going to say something like that, Um, but we all know how it's going to go now. So that's uh, where the whole thing is going. But really the point of 1 and 2 Samuel is about how that will happen and about what kind of king David will be when he assumes the throne in contrast to Saul. We know where it's going to go, but how's it all going to happen? And this really is a big deal in the kind of meta-narrative of the Bible. If you sort of glance at your Bibles kind of side on, you'll notice that we're about a quarter of the way through the whole Bible at this point. We're at the point where God has called his people out of their slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land of Canaan in the Middle East, and he's made a covenant with them, and he's commissioned them to, to be his people, to be a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. That's the language God uses in Exodus chapter 19. This is what his people are going to be like. Most of the world have gone off to do their own thing. Most of the nations have gone off to worship their own gods, to live life however um, suits them best, however they want. But God has been calling a nation who will be different, who will be his representatives. And therefore, molding them into the right kind of kingdom with the right kind of king in charge is obviously very important at this point. In the ancient world, uh, a monarchy was pretty much your only option for governing a people. And therefore, the decisions that a king made sort of affected everybody in a very direct way. What, the, the fate of the people were tied into the king that they had. And so the hunt for the right kind of king to govern God's chosen people has been uh, the overarching narrative of 1 Samuel. Now, Saul <coughs> was the first king the first king that God had anointed. And in many ways, he looked like an excellent candidate for the job. He was tall, we're told. He was strong. He was commanding in many ways. And certainly in my mind's eye, he had an epic beard. That's how I picture Saul. I don't know about you. Um, But he had a fundamental flaw, despite all those other good qualities, which is that his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord God. This was the big problem with Saul. Because to be king of Israel, the first and most important qualification, and arguably really the only qualification, is that you see yourself not really as the king, but as the delegate king, because God himself 
is really the true king. And so about halfway through the book, we learnt this vital lesson, which is that God isn't interested in how good the king looks on the outside. He's interested in what the king looks on the inside, the decisions he makes. And so God raised up David, the replacement king. David came from humble origins. Interestingly, doesn't have an epic beard in my mind's eye. Clean shaven. I don't know if that's the same for you guys and your mental... No, everyone's looking at me blankly, so it's clearly just me. I think David was clean shaven. There we are, probably wasn't. But he had the right kind of character. That's what mattered. He had the right kind of character. He wanted to honor the Lord God as the one true king. Now, Saul didn't go down without a fight, and so we've had chapters and chapters of Saul trying to hunt David down and David escaping from him and having to hide in caves and that kind of thing. Saul spiraling down and down and down into worse and worse decisions. But David growing in popularity and making wise and sensible and courageous choices. And finally, the book has ended with the death of Saul. We all sort of knew it was going to go there. And this is where we pick up the story at the start of 2 Samuel. And it begins with a messenger who is bringing news of Saul's death to David. And he thinks he's bringing good news. But is he? Let's pick it up in verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag for two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Now, the story got a little complicated towards the end of 1 Samuel because David had had to run away from Saul and stay in a town called Ziklag. In the meantime, while Saul was hunting him down, Saul got distracted because the Philistines all invaded and he had to go and deal with that. And that's where this battle has happened and Saul has been killed. So this messenger has come running from Saul's camp in order to tell David because David doesn't know this yet. But why is he coming to David? That's an interesting question, first of all. Why is this messenger running to David? Well, it's public knowledge at this point that David is the replacement king that the prophet Samuel has anointed on behalf of the Lord God. So everybody sort of knows that uh, he's supposed to be receiving the kingdom, and everybody knows that this is why Saul has been hunting him down. It's public knowledge. And so with Saul gone, our messenger has clearly realized that he needs to switch sides pretty sharply. The messenger tells David that he has come from Saul's camp and his clothes are torn and there are ashes on his head because the whole camp is in mourning over the death of Saul. But in verse 3, the messenger tells us that he has escaped from all of that in order to come here. Enough of the mourning. Let's get that out of the way. It's time to get ahead of the game before everybody else does and back the man who is now probably going to become king in Saul's place. You can see what the messenger might be thinking. So he comes to David thinking that he's bringing David good news. The king who has been pursuing David and Jonathan, his son, the heir to the throne, they're both dead now, David. It's finally happened. And furthermore, the messenger can prove that Saul is dead and simultaneously show his loyalty to the new prospective king. Have a look down at verse 6 with me. He says, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned round he saw me, uh, and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. 
that he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, fallen on his own spear, that is, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. There's your proof that the king is dead. I'm holding his crown and his armband in my hand. And you see the symbolism of what he's doing here. It's a little bit like an informal coronation service, isn't it? Good news, my Lord. Here is the crown of the king who is dead. Now long live the new king. Do you see what the messenger is doing? He's making it very clear whose side he's now on. Now, if you can remember back to the account of Saul's death at the end of 1 Samuel, you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, I don't remember this dude appearing on the scene at all. All we were told at that point was that Saul had been wounded by the enemy and had decided to fall upon his own spear rather than be captured by them. And the only other person who had been with him was his armor bearer who had chosen to do the same. And so what must have happened, we are now discovering, is that this messenger appeared on the scene slightly afterwards. Turns out that as Saul lay impaled on his own spear, leaning on his spear, uh, he didn't die immediately. And it's a grisly scene, and I don't recommend you think about this too much. But as he's dying, the messenger then comes across him, and Saul calls out to him to grant him mercy, because he's in the throes of death, but he's not dead yet. Which, of course, when the messenger kills him, then makes it possible for him to take the crown and take the armband and put them in his bag and come to David. So that must have been what's going on. And to reiterate, the messenger thinks that he's bringing David good news and that David will be pleased by all of this. For him, it's a no-brainer. The current king is dead, and his son Jonathan, who would be the heir to the throne, he's dead as well. David's path to the throne is suddenly clear. Fantastic. Of course he's going to be overjoyed. This is what the whole narrative of 1 Samuel has been building towards. God told David that he was going to be king. We all read the spoilers. David has been on the run, having to live in caves and in Philistine territory, being completely unjustly treated by Saul for chapter after chapter. And finally, this tyrant responsible for it all has met his demise. Fantastic! And I think the story is told in such a way that the messenger comes across pretty reasonably <coughs> excuse me, in everything that he did. He, he had killed the king as an act of mercy at the king's request, so he can hardly be accused of being a murderer. If anything, he's proving to David that he's the kind of person who does the hard thing that kings ask of him. He's come running to the man that we all know that God has appointed, so he's now picked the right side, if you like, the God side. And we shouldn't necessarily think that he's simply an opportunist either. He may have every intention of being loyal to David, especially given that we learn that he's a foreigner. Maybe he's wanting to secure his position in the Israelite camp. It all makes sense. There's only one niggling detail that might cause us to wonder whether this man has miscalculated, which is that at the end of 1 Samuel, in the account when Saul died, his armor-bearer, refused to kill Saul. Saul had said to the armor bearer, run me through before the Philistines came. come. And the armor bearer was afraid to do it and refused. Why was he afraid? 
And we can imagine the scene, can't we? The messenger smiling as he holds out the royal crown before David, expecting cheers and celebrations to break out. And the smile draining from his face as David takes hold of his clothes and tears them. And the cries that break out are not cries of celebration. And instead of a party, there's fasting. And David turns to the young man in verse 13 and he says to him, where do you come from? Now, why has he asked that question at, at that point? Has it all got a little bit awkward and he's just making chit-chat with him because the messenger's sort of standing around while everyone's mourning? Or is there a subtext to it? Because there's clearly something that this man doesn't know that he ought to know. And he replies that he's an Amalekite, the son of a sojourner. Now, None of you are gasping and falling off your seat at that detail, so I'm guessing I'm going to have to explain the significance of why this man is an Amalekite and why that might be uh, important. You're all sort of looking at me with sort of, yeah, so what kind of expressions? Why does it matter that the man is an Amalekite? Well, cast your mind back several chapters when we were in the middle of 1 Samuel. What was the point when God rejected Saul from being the king? It was when he had tasked Saul to bring about a judgment upon the Amalekites, which Saul failed to do. You see, the history of the Amalekites is that when God had brought his people out of Egypt, he had defeated Pharaoh and so on, and brought them out of Egypt to their promised land, the Amalekites came and opposed them. It was a terrible thing to do to the God of the universe and the people that he had brought out of slavery. And this is the reckoning now that God had chosen for them and which Saul didn't carry out entirely according to instructions. David himself has had to carry on the job, in fact. If you look at verse 1 of our passage, we see that David has just returned from striking down the Amalekites, finishing off the job that Saul was supposed to do. And now here is an Amalekite standing before him, cheerfully announcing that he's put to death Saul the king. And he's made a big mistake. But David isn't angry with him because um, the man's an Amalekite. David just sort of hates all the Amalekites. He's angry with him because Amalekites don't get who God really is. It's the same old problem. The reason why the Amalekites opposed Israel centuries before was because they had no regard for the one true God of the world who was doing this. Didn't care for him at all. And thought they'd just take advantage of the opportunity. And David says to him in verse 14, Why weren't you afraid to lift up your hand against the king? No, that's not what he says. Have a look down at it. Against the Lord's anointed. Not just the king, but the Lord's anointed. Why were you not afraid to strike down the one that God had appointed and put in charge? This is why the armor bearer wouldn't do it. This is why he was afraid. For the Amalekite was just business. If anything, he was being kind to a man who was in need. But he fundamentally didn't get that you can't touch the Lord's anointed. Because to raise up your hand against the Lord's anointed is to raise up your hand against God himself. It doesn't matter that he's an obstacle to David taking the throne. It doesn't matter even that it seems like a reasonable thing to do in the passage. He's still the Lord's anointed. 
And David orders the man to be struck down. Your blood be on your own head, he says. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Is David too severe? Well, we'll think more about why he takes all this so seriously in just a minute. But before we get to that, David gives us a song of lament in order to remember Saul and Jonathan. Now, if you think all the way back to the start of 1 Samuel, you may remember that the book started with another song by Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Before we got into all the story about Saul and and David and so on, there was a sort of a prologue about Samuel and his mother. And Hannah sang this wonderful song of expectation about how God is about to raise up this mighty king. The final line of it went like this. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And now at the start of 2 Samuel, we begin with another song, which we might expect to be a celebration because David's way to the throne is clear. But it's not a song of celebration. It's a song of lament and it's a song of tragedy. A song whose refrain goes like this, how the mighty have fallen, which appears several times through the song. This is not a good outcome. This is not a happy day. The king was supposed to judge the ends of the earth. The Lord's anointed was supposed to be strong. He was supposed to put an end to all those nations who despise God. That's what Hannah's song had said. That's what the game plan was. But instead, compromise and confusion and corruption. And finally, the Lord's anointed lies slain on the high places at the hands of those very nations. Firstly, the Philistines. And then in great irony, the Amalekites finish off the job, even though Saul had supposed to be being the one judging them. Tell it not in Gath, David says. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Don't let the word get out lest the Philistines rejoice in the death of the Lord's anointed. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And you might be thinking, (laughs) it doesn't really sound like the Saul that we were reading about in 1 Samuel. And it's true that the narrative focused very heavily on the things that Saul was getting wrong. But that's not the full picture. Remember back at the start when the Ammonites held Jabesh Gilead to ransom. Who was it who came and saved them? Saul came to their rescue, swifter than an eagle, stronger than a lion. And he saved them from their fate when no one else could do. So David chooses to remember the great positives of Saul in this song of lament so that we feel the tragedy of everything that has gone wrong here. Not only Saul, but Jonathan as well. Verse 26, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Throughout everything, Jonathan had been a humble and committed companion as well as a great warrior. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had been consistently supportive of David. His love towards David had surpassed the kind of love that even a wife might give. Not in an erotic way, of course, but in his steadfast commitment to David, even when he would have been the heir to the throne if David wasn't there. What an ally, what a right-hand man he would have been. And now what a waste Jonathan lay slain on the high places as well. 
This is not a good day. The Amalekites should have stayed in the camp of mourning rather than coming here if he had really understood the significance of the death of the Lord's anointed. How the mighty have fallen. Now the big question that we're supposed to be asking as we read this passage is why does David care so much about Saul? Throughout most of 1 Samuel, we were led to despise Saul more and more. He was the big baddie. He was the tyrant. We wanted to see him judged for everything he had done unfairly to David. But now as Saul dies, we're supposed to have our feelings flipped around by David, the very one he's been persecuting. The way that David insists that Saul is remembered is as a tragic loss, not good riddance to a despot. You can see that in verse 18. He decrees that this lament, he's not just singing it, he decrees that this lament should be remembered by all the people of Judah. From now on, whenever we think of Saul, our first thought is supposed to be how the mighty have fallen rather than good riddance to a despot, says David. And really the lesson behind all of this is a reiteration of a point that 1 Samuel has been teaching us over and over again, if you can think back that far. Often the Bible does this um, when, it, when it teaches, especially through the Old Testament narrative passages. We sometimes come along and think uh, that it's going to be a little bit like Aesop's fables, and each week it will sort of give us a different life lesson, and then here's another one, and here's another one. But so often it's really teaching one point over and over again, which is like a snowball building momentum as it goes down the mountain. And if we miss that point, then we're kind of missing everything. Because we could apply this and sort of, we could take David's top tips on how to lament, for example. That would be a perfectly valuable thing to do. But if we miss the bigger point, then we're missing the bigger point that the whole story has been telling us. Because we should be feeling a sense of deja vu if we've been here for this, uh, the previous series. This lesson has come up in different forms over and again. Remember when Saul stumbled into the cave that David was hiding in with his men. And the men all thought, this is brilliant. God has delivered Saul into our hands. And what did David do? He cut off the corner of Saul's robe in order to show that he wasn't going to put to death the Lord's anointed. In fact, even that he thought was too much to do. And what happened when David snuck into the camp where Saul was and he could have assassinated him? He refused to do so instead. Now that Saul is finally dead, he won't even rejoice. He's devastated and he holds accountable the man who has ended his life. So why does David care so much for Saul? (laughs) We can understand why he cares for Jonathan, but why does he care so much for Saul? And let's be absolutely clear. Obviously, there's a sense in which it's a good thing that Saul is dead. It's good for David because he can now become king. It's good for the people because Saul was a bad king and was not leading them well. It's good for God's plan as a whole because God has anointed David. And now what he's saying is is coming true. If this were anybody else, David would not be lamenting for them. He doesn't lament for tyrants normally. You know, David did not lament over the death of Goliath, for example, after he had killed him. He didn't stand there singing a song about how the mighty have fallen, although that was definitely true. No, he cut his head off. So this song is very Saul-specific. The only reason why David has such a deep regard for Saul is because of his deep respect for God himself. 
Saul was the Lord's anointed, even though he was asked for wrongly by the people, even though he ended up being rejected by God, even though he ended up doing some really terrible things, even though he's been persecuting David, he's still the Lord's anointed. He's still the one that God had chosen. And that reason alone makes his death a tragedy, according to David. And I think the author of 1 and 2 Samuel knows fine well that this will be a shock for us and we have to kind of wrestle with it as we read it. I think the whole thing's written so that we can sort of imagine ourselves in the shoes of the Amalekite. We kind of got the point that David didn't want to fight Saul because he was the Lord's anointed and you just sort of wait for um, God's timing. But now that Saul is dead, we're kind of there with the Amalekite cheerfully bringing the news along, maybe saying that we helped to kind of move, move things along a little bit. Get Saul off the throne. Get him out of the way. Let's get the story going. Well, if we thought that, then David might have had us executed if we were actually there. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Because he thinks it shows a low regard for God. If our first thought wasn't that the death of the Lord's anointed was a terrible tragedy, then we need to change our thinking. And this really is this building point through the narrative that I've been talking about. It's been teaching us about how we're supposed to think about God himself rightly as his kingdom is being built at this point in the Bible story. The true king over everything, the Lord God. This is the quality that David has in spades, that he really, really cares about God. It's why he's the outline of the right kind of king. It's why you know further down the line in the Bible story when the Lord Jesus comes along that he's also the right kind of king because he has the same quality even more so. Now David has his problems, as we'll read on, we'll discover he has plenty of problems all right. But the one thing that he models well is this, that he cares so much about God and God's decisions. He's modeling what it looks like to take God seriously. And so what the book is doing is it's teaching us what it looks like to have the right kind of attitude towards our Heavenly Father as we are built together as his people. There isn't a sort of a straight line, uh, like-for-like situation from here to whatever you're doing on a Monday morning. You know, you're not going to get a WhatsApp message telling you that the Lord's anointed has been slain on the mountains of Gilboa, for example. But the book is teaching us that we're supposed, how we're supposed to think about God together as we walk together as his people. And as I've been reflecting on this, I wonder if this is a challenge for us in our present time, our present generation. Do we treat God with a basically somewhat cavalier sort of attitude? Do we take him that seriously? Do you feel like if you were there, you would have been more like the Amalekite and think, ah, not big news? Or would you have been more like David, thinking this is a terrible, terrible thing that's happened? What does it teach us about how seriously we take God? And I'm not thinking of particular examples in life here, but rather a sort of a general impression of what our relationship with God is like together. Um, When we read things that God says in the Bible, is our instinct to take him seriously? Or do we treat his decrees and instructions rather lightly? Especially when it comes to think about what it looks like to follow our Lord, the true anointed, the Lord Jesus. If David cares this much for Saul, who was a bad Lord's anointed, how much more ought we to care about Jesus, the true Lord's anointed? Not just because he's done good things for us. Sometimes we really care about Jesus because we know that he has been good to us. But actually, there's an even more basic reason that the Bible teaches us at this point, which is that we take Jesus seriously because God has appointed him and put him in charge. 
That's the starting point. And I wonder if that's how you think about your relationship with Jesus day to day, how we do it together as a whole as we try to follow him. This is the Lord's anointed. This is the one that God has put in charge. We take him seriously. Well, why don't we pray for God's help to do that as we finish? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this passage. We recognize that, there's, uh, that it's, it's, a, it's a difficult passage. It's, it's challenging as we wrestle with what David does here. And it seems so, so shocking that he's so positive towards Saul when Saul was so bad. And we thank you for the ways in which it's teaching us about what it looks like to take you seriously. And we pray, especially as we think of our walk with the Lord Jesus, we pray that we would take him as seriously as David would do, simply because you have put him in charge and he is the king that you have appointed. We pray for your help as we try to do that together as a church. And in his name we pray. Amen.